Welcome to On The Verge. This podcast will highlight interviews from entrepreneurs, musicians, and professional golfers. It will center around what tools they have used to help them reach their dreams, how they use golf to further their career, whether it be for escape from the rigors of their profession or to build more business, and how the communitas of wine, music, and golf enrich their lives. This is all about the enjoyment of life, rising above the struggles, and stretching past the best to be better every day. On The Verge. On The Verge is presented by Cure, cannabis used for research and education. The medical industry is steadfastly looking to help millions of patients that suffer from injuries related to repetitive motion, sports, trauma, and many other orthopedic injuries, as well as skin disorders, mental disorders, cancer, and osteoporosis, to name only a few of the other underlying conditions that billions suffer from each day. On average in this country, we have 10,000 people turning 65 every day. With the cost of pharmaceutical medicines increasing, patients deserve natural alternatives that are not only more cost-effective, but also safer for them and society. Cure is focused on providing natural alternatives to aid with current or previous medical conditions. Cure does this by providing a therapeutic properties of natural cannabinoid formulations for multiple uses, whether internally or externally. Ask your physical therapist or your primary care physician if cannabinoids are right for you. Or check out their website at www.curemich.com. Cure. Cannabis used for research and education. Welcome to On The Verge. Today's special uh, interview is with great friend, fellow PGA professional, and my assistant coach of the first time we've ever won a state championship here at the (laughs) Ensworth School. Butch Rhodes. Butch, how are you today, buddy? I'm doing great today, Verge. I appreciate you uh, inviting me on. Um, excited about you all's future to, to uh, repeat uh, coming up in the, in the golf season. Well, I'm, lo- I'm looking forward. Hopefully COVID allows us to play it. It could be it could get dicey as we head closer to the fall. But well, We can't lose if that happens, right? <laughs> That's right. We'll still be defending. Uh, but one of the things I wanted to get to is the fact that this year you've asked to take a break as our coach so that you could do something more impactful and more important and it is more important and I wanted to let you discuss that so tell us what it is that is taking you away from the Ensworth golf team for this year to do something remarkable and powerful uh, in the world of golf Uh, being able to grow the game um, I think uh, we have a unique opportunity uh, with the uh, PGA of America who has a came out and stated that they wanted to be uh, more inclusive uh, and uh, provide more opportunities for minorities to enjoy the game of golf. Mm -hmm. And uh, so it's really important that that, uh, in doing so that they have some seasoned veterans that have been PGA professionals in the the room to be able to give them some guidance and how they can improve some of the things that they need to do to make golf – more available for uh, people of uh, diverse color, uh, offering more opportunities for people to be able to uh, and be, get involved in the golf industry, mm-hmm. to be able to uh, put out programs that allow people to learn how to use golf as a social business tool, and, uh, and also creating uh, opportunities for them to be vendors in the industry. So um, all those things... Uh, are really important because 
in order for the growth of the game to happen, uh, it's going to happen through uh, demographics. Sure. So uh, minorities are graduating, going to college, graduating from high school, going to college, and uh, getting better jobs with earning more job, uh, more money, with more discretionary income to make luxury purchases. Nice. So when the PGA gets ready to advertise on the PGA Tour, uh, those are the people that they're going to be trying to get to advertise to get to make the growth of the game uh, in golf happen. Got it. Uh, because there's as many, almost as many uh, whites leaving the game as they are coming to the game because that's just the way of the demographics. Sure. So uh, what is important to us is to make sure that all the opportunities, the careers, uh, working in the industry, playing the game, that we make sure that we create programs that uh, facilitate that growth. That's awesome. So for those of you out there that aren't familiar, Butch is one of only five quarter century club PGA members uh, that's an African-American. So they've, they've brought in somebody with great experience, and there aren't many, which is a sad thing. Talk to us about the numbers and how skewed the numbers are in the PGA as it pertains to uh, the black man versus the, the white when it comes to numbers. You know, um, so it's currently 29,000 PGA golf professionals. Okay. Wow. Uh, and out of, out of 29,000 PGA golf professionals, I should say, uh, there's only 120 African-American PGA members. Wow. And out of that, out of that 120, there's only five of us that are quarter century members that's been in the PGA longer than 25 years. Wow. And so uh, there's been uh, a decline uh, in, the, in the growth of the game with members through the years. And so those are the kind of things that we need to address with the PGA uh, so that we can go ahead and uh, develop programs that would allow us to be able to uh, grow the game, yeah. uh, make, make, th- make that uh, sector of the golf industry more available to um, companies so that they can hire them. Uh, and uh, also, you know, golf's the greatest social business tool on earth. No doubt. So we have programs like um, Color Me Golf, is a program that we developed to bring uh, young business people in, executives, doctors, and lawyers, teaching them how to play golf and teaching them how to use golf as a social tool, business tool, but also uh, as a uh, lifestyle mm-hmm. uh, tool. It's, it's interesting. when We, we discussed, discussed this before we got on the air, um, the importance of that piece. When you think about Color Me Golf, and I know you, you put this in the, in, in the works a while ago, Right. Talk to us about the success that you've you've seen and felt from the people that have come into your program and got out, and the impact that it's making. Well, you know, I've been <clears throat> I've been teaching the game of golf uh, since uh, nineteen eighty three, and when I first got into the game, uh, diversity wasn't fashionable. Mm-hmm. Uh, you had the PGA, you had the PGA Tour. And then uh, you had the uh, African-American tour, the National Golf Tour. And uh, it wasn't until 1965 until they let uh, Charlie Sifford become the first African-American to actually play on the PGA Tour. Yeah. Um, and uh, in doing so, 
um, the PGA and the PGA of America, they split. Uh, the club pros continued to be able to play at certain v events and get in, but they pretty much start developing their own playing programs like we still have through the PGA. Yeah. Um, uh, and the grandfather of that being the PGA uh, uh, championship. But then you had the club professionals. In order to be a club pro, you had to work under a PGA professional as, a, a, as an apprentice. Mm -hmm. So um, being most of the influences of those jobs came from really uh, the country clubs had more of the control over what was going on. Sure. So it wasn't real easy to be able to get a job working in the industry when I first got started mm -hmm. because they would say to me at the beginning, well, you don't have enough experience. And then they would also say to me later on, you're overqualified. Mm -hmm. So I had to work through that. And it, and it wasn't until uh, I uh, ran into a, a golf professional named um, Fred Muller, who's the head pro at Crystal Downs in yeah. Frankfurt, Michigan, one of the top 100 golf courses in the world. No doubt. Uh, and uh, Fred and I struck up a relationship, and uh, he told me about the PGA Tour. And um, uh, the PGA of America uh, uh, apprentice program and told me, hey, you can still play, but if you don't decide that you want to play, you can get in the golf industry. So he then introduced me to Ben Davis, the first African-American club pro in, in Detroit. And uh, I worked for Benny, and then I went to work in the Mid-Atlantic. Mm -hmm. And when I went to the Mid-Atlantic, uh, they had Virginia, West Virginia, D.C., and Maryland yep. is their section. And I was the only African-American that could play in those pro-amps during that time. And Fred Funk, Funk was in that sec section. Hmm. Um, uh, Larry Starzo, who was a big rules guy. Yeah. He was at Lansing Country Club, but then he, he actually came from Maryland. Uh, was, Donnie Fitch, Hammond, was, was Donnie Hammond Scott, in there? Donnie, all those guys were Webb in Webb Heinzelman? Webb Heinzelman. Webb Heinzelman is one of That was my guy. Actually, I traveled <laughs> a lot with Is that yeah, right? Yeah, he taught me how to... Uh, how to play gin rummy, and it only cost me a couple hundred dollars to learn how to play. <laughs> but uh, so I had uh, so web. So I worked in there, did my apprentice program, and then I worked all around the country in different different sections, uh, growing the game uh, within the urban community, primarily um, uh, teaching from uh, high school kids all the way up to uh, to, to uh, working at the Detroit Athletic Club as the teaching professional there. Uh, in Florida, working under Charlie Epps as the as the head pro in Herman Park in Houston. Yeah, uh, and then going back down to Florida, playing a little bit of tournament golf, and then back up to Michigan, where I've spent the last uh, prior to coming here, spent the last few years playing. And all throughout that, um, it wasn't easy, but uh, I learned a lot. I got a chance to build some relationships, uh, but I also got a chance to witness what I would say. Uh, the unwillingness to try to, uh, by the PGA of America, to try to uh, allow us to have equal access mm -hmm. when it came to uh, certain things with the PGA. Well, that doesn't surprise me. Uh, it's a fairly archaic group stuck in the 1800s. Yeah. Uh, it's interesting, you know, the PGA hired uh, a marketing research company out of Texas A&M that was headed by my best friend at Mississippi State. And after the the thorough breakdown in market research. They went in and told them all the things that they needed to do to get into the 20, right. 21st century. And they never returned his call. Oh yeah. They, <laughs> they were, um, the PGA 
and I love I love all my PGA uh, uh, friends. Yeah, me too, uh, and members. And, but the leadership was really uh, the racism was really systemic. Uh, whenever they came out, you know, when they're and, and the PGA is market driven. Mm-hmm. The PGA of America and the PGA Tour. It's a marketing pro. You know, it's it's all about marketing. And so, you know, their thing was now that they see that the, they've already bought 22 or 24 tours. They own the women's tour. They own the uh, tour and Pan American tour. They own the Australian tour over in China. So all those are marketing. Well, all of the companies now with the demographics change in the United States, they want to get a relationship with that, with that, with that marketing group, with that group of individuals. So um, they've tried to run different programs to try to build brand relationships uh, uh, with African-Americans. But uh, what they did was all their programs failed because they didn't have anybody at the table that looked like uh, that were African-American and to go and help get them to be able to develop the relationships that they, that they're looking to try to develop now. Yeah. So they had the first T pro, I mean, they had the, uh, uh, Junior golf, all different types of junior golf programs that they came up. Get golf ready and junior golf this and junior got the first swing, uh, and then they came out with the the uh, PGA. And I'll, I'll probably get a, a little bit of uh, gruff for this, but I'm just telling you how it is. Yeah, tell us how it is. Uh, they had the PGA uh, first tee when they first did the first tee. I was working in Detroit as the golf pro at the Detroit Athletic Club. So every first tee when they did, uh, they went to four or five stops around the country and uh, they took a picture with the president, uh, former president George Bush, uh, the the older Bush. Mm -hmm. He was the first honorary chairman of the first tee. And so when they got to Detroit, we took a a photo with him. They've actually had the same photo at the uh, Tennessee section, PGA section uh, with him in there. So, um, so the program was originally supposed to be about uh, uh, teaching families how to play golf. They built a nice facility with Rick Smith, and uh, they ended up um, uh, Ford put some money to the side for them. Everything's hunky dory. But what what they didn't do was they did not uh, uh, they they end up changing the program because they couldn't find. Uh, enough African-Americans to run the program because in order to run a PGA program back then, you had to be a PGA member. <laughs> well, I, I was the only one. So yeah. I was going all around the state doing different programs and whatnot. And they didn't hire me for the, you know, they didn't hire me to run the first tee in Michigan. Uh, they hired some other people. And uh, the reason that they had problems with the success of the first tee to this date is because they made it about, life skills yep the kids well you know you got to learn how to be honest and you've seen the 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 move i mean the uh the ads you know in golf you got to count all your strokes or if you move the where your ball moves you've got to be honest and tell the the right thing and all that stuff tell me i just want to know how many people when they go and they go play and take a sports, go to a sports camp, okay, 
and they're going to learn how to play golf or go, go out and play basketball. They go and play basketball, right? Yeah. So yeah. when they go play football, right, they play football. When they go and play baseball and they go to baseball camp, right, they're mm-hmm. playing. That's right. And then they go home. Golf is the only sport that said that the kids had to learn life skills before they could go out on the field. And kids love to play. Yeah. So the kids were saying, you know, we're not interested in it. Why would I do that when I go walk around the corner and go play basketball? Yeah. You know? And so um, this is, this is what, what I feel it was, is that they did not want another Tiger Woods. Okay? They did not want an African-American to have full control of their game. Okay? So what they did was they came out with the first tee. Now, people don't understand the significance of the first tee. Very few, too. Yeah. The first tee was designed by a black dentist. I don't know that. Yeah. The first tee was, um, uh, man, I can't believe I can't say his name, but he designed the first tee. So they took the first tee and they made it the name of their program. Now, not only are the kids, uh, uh, when they go to play, have to take these classes before they go play. Now, when they get ready to go play, they got to wear a shirt that's got a brand on them. So now every time a kid, that they see a kid that has first teeth, they're thinking it's a minority kid. Interesting. Because the next minority kid that came through that's going to be like Tiger Woods, they wanted to, wanted to be a first teeth thing so they can go to their corporate people and say, look at here. Yeah, look what we did. They came through my program. Yep, That's why right. the first tees all are dropping left and right. Interesting. So they bring you in. Yeah. You got all these ideas, and you have experience, too. Right. Talk to us about your recommendations of where you see the greatest gifts to give back. Because right now, although COVID has rattled large percentages of the world economy, if there's one that has been booming that will be unsuspecting, it's the golf industry. Yes. Um, right. So we got them now. We, we have a captive audience because they can't really play anything else. Right. And now, I mean, I'm teaching people that I haven't taught in 20 years because they just like, <laughs> oh, I got nothing else to do. Get right. back, let's get back into playing golf. We got, we got a, a great moment right now, yeah. not just for golfers, right. but for the business of golf to capture this, all of these groups. Right. Not just African Americans, right. women, kids, right. and retirees, right. and people that have never played before. Well, unity brings people together, and when you bring when you bring minorities together with non-minorities, they're going to all come together and play. Uh, golf is a three hundred billion dollar industry. Golf is bigger than the movie and music industry combined. Wow! So. That market, the PGA's had problems and why they're under fire because they don't have any connection to that market because they keep throwing in programs that don't fail and don't reach the community. They should have been in. It took them years before they took that thing off that allowed other people other than PGA members mm. to, to give, have access to go teach programs in the city, uh, PGA and LPGA uh, that, uh, that are involved. But the, the thrust of it was... I had when I when I was talking, I taught at the I taught at the uh, 
community colleges. I did a program, a four-year pilot program at Michigan State University to teach kids how to use a social business tool and how to get careers in the golf industry. Yeah. Because everything in golf is engineered. Okay, so where are they getting these, all these engineers from? Well, Michigan State, all these colleges have engineers, and there are over 60 or 70 colleges or, or more across the United States that have golf courses. So uh, the pilot program that I did was at Michigan State University, and uh, I actually wrote a program that was, had included the University of Michigan's engineering school uh, to teach the kids how to play, and then they would go in the fall when there's not a football game and go play at a, a golf course that was in walking distance at Michigan State. Mm-hmm. I mean at Michigan. But what, uh, what, what they have is uh, Lyndon B. Johnson said – back in 1965, that the only thing, the war on poverty, the only way to get poverty is through education. So he developed a program called the Upward Bound Program. And Upward Bound is a college readiness program Mm -hmm. where kids go to campus, on the campus. When I first came in, you go and stay on campus during the summer, and it's, it's, it's summer school, but you have classes in the morning and activities in the afternoon. And you actually learn how to be, uh, you actually be able to take classes and get tutoring. So when you go and go to, go re- get ready to go to college, you've got a greater percentage of go- be- being uh, ready to go to school. Mm-hmm. Now that program started in uh, uh, just over 50 years ago. Uh, uh, and now it's the number one public educational program in the history of public education. Wow. And so... By teaching these young people at Michigan State University and Oakland University, we've actually have opportunities to teach these programs throughout the whole country. Yeah. Because because the kids are in upper bound, they're treated like regular college students. So the universities that have golf courses have to give these kids access to the golf course. Now the golf courses like at Michigan State University, they have golf camps and stuff. So they really they don't have enough teachers. So we can bring in outside professionals. We brought in outside professionals to teach the programs. And we can actually tell the kids uh, uh, about golf and the industry. You know, we point out there and say, look, you see all those balls out there? You know, see that lady walking down the street? She's got uh, a bucket of balls, and she paid $10 for that bucket. There's 100 balls in there. And uh, when she hits those balls a couple of times, those balls cost 25 cents. They're paid for now, who engineered those balls? And who engineered the basket that they had for those balls? Mm-hmm. And I said, look out in the parking lot. I said, you see all those cars in the parking lot? I said, you see a bad-looking car out there? <laughs> you know. Yep. So, you know, my whole story with them, and I've introduced this to the PGA. I've actually sent them a copy of my outline, is to try to tie in those upper bound students because that's the demographics that they're looking for, right? Sure. Uh, if they're in, they start in ninth grade, so in three years, three or four years, they graduated, they're ready to go buy a car or do whatever they wanted to go do. Uh, and uh, so when companies like Mercedes-Benz recognized it, they developed a foundation called the Lowers Foundation. And what they did was they went into the inner cities and paid for coaches to run programs. So they could develop brand recognition. Interesting. So, so they came up with a car 
back in the uh, that uh, was the 300 C at the time. OK, or 200, 220, whatever it was, that was under thirty thousand dollars. So these kids come in and purchase it. They recognize it. They have a relationship with it and they and they go on. Well, the PGA's had the, right now companies are looking to try to tie those in. So now when they look at the PGA Tour, when Tiger's on, OK, they're seeing Tiger, not like he was, but they're seeing him. But when Tiger's not on there, they don't have they. Minorities spend $30 billion a year. That's 20%. So when, the, when they're watching Tiger, they're up there. But when Tiger leaves, uh, that, that $2 out of every $10 is down the drain in advertising. They're not hitting that market. Interesting. So in order to hit that market, if they developed in the programs like uh, the kids that are in Upward Bound, now they developed the brand recognition they also have opportunities to tell these kids what they want when they come out of college in terms of jobs, not just give them a profile saying, uh, I, I helped at the boys and girls clubs. Mm-hmm. I'm, a, I'm on the swim team. I'm on the golf team, whatever it is, football. Okay. Mm-hmm. Now we can develop their brand. These companies can come in and look and look at them and say, look, I want to go into engineering. What type of engineering what do I need to have to know? What's my career path to get there? So we get the corporations in to start supporting that. So then now we've got the communities, right? Uh, for the kids to be able to, when they get out of school, uh, if it's whatever company it is, mm-hmm. they have their logo on and they're walking around campus supporting their programs. And then you also have other pro- uh, colleges like Ohio State and stuff that have golf classes for students during the regular season. Michigan State does too in the Mm -hmm. fall. All those that have golf courses. Sure. So now you tie those kids in together and so now they're having activities like what I'm doing over here with Color Me Golf where these kids come together and they have a little something to drink and they learn how to play to develop relationships and keep on moving. That's awesome. So as you're you're dealing with the PGA now, what, what gives you hope that this time it's different? You know, um, I'm, I'm, I'm not afraid, but uh, the problem that I see that's happening, uh, to be honest with you, is that they're not coming to us, our senior leadership. Really? Yeah. They, they, you know, they, a lot of the kids that I learned, like a lot of the people that I've taught golf to are actually junior leaders in the golf industry now. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, and... So instead of going to the senior leadership and saying we got five uh, Tw- quarter century quarter century members, mm-hmm. what do y'all think we need to do? No, they 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 had we had two forums. The first two forums we didn't even get a chance to speak. Well, what po- what good point is that? Then so now they've organized some groups that we're supposed to. They organize. Uh, the section in five different sections that different different groups minorities, mm-hmm. and then we're supposed to I don't know talk it out amongst ourselves. But how can how can we how can we talk about it uh, when they want to talk to the young kids? Here's what I want the PGA to do: call me, call me, and let's talk leaders to leaders, grown seasoned professionals with grown seasoned professionals. Yeah. And then uh, 
allow us the ability to develop a uh, a uh, a board, which would be the seasoned professionals, come up with what we feel like is important to us in order to help uh, help the PGA grow the game. Yeah. And they need to just take the cotton out their ears and put it in their mouth for a minute and listen to what we've got to say, and we can help them out. Yeah. But uh, they want uh, they want to scatter this thing and do it back and forth. And I'm I'm a little concerned uh, about it because uh, we we've earned the right to be able to go to the table and talk to them, and they need to talk to us face to face. But they don't need to go through the young kids. I'm, yeah. I mean, I'm no disrespect yeah. to the young PGA professionals out there. You know, I love you all. You know where I'm coming from, but I've got to tell it how it is. Yeah. They need to be talking with people that know the past. Yeah. If you know the past, you can definitely control the future. 100%. But if you don't, if you want to leave the past back behind you and they think that they can fix it again, we're going to have some problems. That's my big concern. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Because, like, to me, when I I watched this, when you told me that you had an opportunity to do something great, and I said, you got to take it. You got to just take your... Right. Away from Ensworth. Well, the Lord put me here for this moment. No question about it. You know, uh, and and I'm not going to shy away from it uh, with the PGA because uh, they really should have been calling us up. Now, what can we do to change it? There's already infrastructure in the minority community that uh, it continues to thrive in the game. Golf's still big. It's, yeah. Golf is big in the turn of the century with golf. But what happens is that uh, different, back, back when they had the PGA and they weren't allowing minorities to go into the clubhouse, what they did was they played at public golf courses and then they had like the Elks Club or they had some type of auxiliary housing or a place where they met mm-hmm. uh, and so that's where we go and eat and have our food and kind of hang out and do whatever. Well, they started having different organizations across the country. The Pyre Makers, the Divots, the Capital City Golfers, the Vehicle City Golfers, all around the country. Flint, Michigan, Detroit, Chicago, Greensboro, North Carolina, Atlanta, California. They still have these organizations. Okay, Mm -hmm. so why doesn't the PGA help empower those organizations to be able to develop ways of being able to grow the game through those organizations and get them involved uh, in the process of, of, of bringing the game together? Do you think it's a problem with control? They feel like they're out of control if they do that. They they don't want to turn They're. I don't know. Um. Do you feel like they just don't – if they do that, not only is it not – they're not PGA, but they feel like maybe they lose a little bit of control of the outcome? Well, here's what they would do. You would just make it – instead of having a, a, a country club, those, those memberships would – those members would be a member of a club, and then they would play the courses. So you'd have PGA – that would actually allow them to be able to develop the relationships within the community. Mm-hmm. Instead of going in there 
trying to be condescending like they did with the first T program. Yeah. That program, I knew from the beginning. I got a program that I did in, in Washington, D.C. That's in, in the Washington, I think I might have showed you the picture. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, uh, teaching kids in 1983 how to play golf. And what we did was I went to Coca-Cola, uh, and I, uh, I met the guy that was the regional director at uh, a distributor in, in uh, playing golf, went to his office, said, I need $10,000 to teach golf. And it was uh, right next to the uh, our JFK Stadium in D.C., mm-hmm. Langston Golf Course, historically black golf course. And um, I went over there. They had a driving range and a golf course. And I started teaching the kids how to play golf four days a week through the Mid-Atlantic. They gave me the clubs. John Haynes was the executive director. He gave me the clubs. Karen Hoffman, I remember these names vividly, was the head of uh, Wilson. She gave us $10,000 worth of golf clubs. And so uh, we had, we had uh, different pros come down and teach every week. Fred came probably twice during the whole season. Fred Funk. Uh, we had uh, John Haynes, uh, Al Green, who was an African-American PGA professional, but he ended up working for Anheuser-Busch. He came. Uh, Webb Heinzelman came. Chuck Bassler, who played in the Masters, mm-hmm. and his son, they all came, um, came and, uh, and worked the camp. And so I taught 75 kids a day, four days a week, wow. for eight weeks every summer in Washington, D.C., and the reason I did not put my name on it was because I said, you know, I may move. And I wanted it to be the Interclub Federation of Golfers program. Yeah. So that they came in and they taught and they would move on. But these kids weren't coming in having to learn how to act. Yeah. They, if, they had the rules. We told them when they came in, you stand over here for safety wise. This is where we got to be standing so you don't get hit. Uh, if you hit the ball a little bit in front of the thing, don't pick it up. If you pick it up, you got to sit out one, you know. And when we went out and played golf with the kids, they learned, you know, they learned how to uh, to keep score and uh, told them the importance of the rules and yeah. stuff. So help help me dispel a myth out there. Kids kids love to play golf. It doesn't make a difference what color they yeah. are. What's different about teaching kids in the inner city or the underprivileged that's different than teaching the, the country club kids outside of resources, just like what it's like teaching the kids. It's the same thing. It's man. the same thing. It's just like basketball. Yeah. Why would you, why would you think you got to teach kids how to act? Because they knew that there's going to be more minorities going to watch the tour with tiger. Yeah. So they didn't want them up there, you know, cause back then, you know, you had to be super quite new. You didn't have the people like you got out in uh, Phoenix yeah. Or the 17th hole at the Buick Open. That's right. Where they're screaming and yelling crazy. They would have got kicked out <laughs> back then. That's so right. So they knew that it was coming. And so they were just being condescending. Condescending and thinking that we were going to come out there and spoil the, we didn't have the etiquette that we were going to, we weren't going to display the etiquette. Yeah. But, uh, so that's, that's, that was another big part of it uh, uh, with them, I think. Uh, coming in and and they kind of I wouldn't say they panicked they just didn't know because they didn't have relationships every time with golf they would look down on people in of color uh and 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 it's systemic it went all the way back to when 
I first applied for it. I still have the first uh, the first proposal that I made to the city of Detroit to operate Palmer Park Golf Course. Mm-hmm. So I went to the city. I, I, I made a uh, proposal, sent it in, and uh, I was going to get the food and beverage and the carts and the approach and the golf course would get, yeah. uh, would get the green fees. Well, the city of Detroit's golf courses at the time, it was all union workers in the city. Mm-hmm. So the golf's golf takes is, a, is, is, um, takes a, is labor intense industry. Yes. So, what was happening is these people were standing behind the register paying green fees, but they're also accruing, you know, benefits. So after a while, it got to where their 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 um, their employees were were at their their employment thing was at was at sixty. I mean, excuse me, fifty two, fifty four percent was their cost of labor, and you just can't do business like that. Yeah. So what did they do? They went to the city. Uh, American Golf went to the city and said, we want to privatize your golf courses. We want to manage your golf courses for you. And it sort of makes sense on the outside, but who they're talking to about golf are people that never ran a golf course. Yeah. Because all the people in the Parks and Recreation Department in the city of Detroit knew nothing about the golf industry as a whole. Mm-hmm. Because you had the people that cut the grass, they had their job, and then you had the people that did the clubhouse, they had their job, and then you had people that did the green fees, they did their job. So when Detroit started losing money with the golf courses, they came in and said, well, let's privatize it, we'll, we'll operate them. But what they did was they took those jobs in the city away from PGA professionals like myself. Got it. Now, we're not, we didn't get those club pro jobs. Mm-hmm. Not all of the jobs that they got in the city were, and, they, and there was only one African-American PGA member, Ben Davis, yeah. over at Rackham, and then that was it. So um, the, the biggest question uh, came from them was that when they privatized it, they also took away a lot of the playing opportunities for the kids in the community. Because the whole thing about golf, like any other, any other, any other sport that's put on by the city, it's to break even. And if you make money, that money goes into the general fund to try to hold up programs that don't have any revenue. Got it. Okay. So once American Golf took over, there was all you know. They were all about the cash, so the mm-hmm. kids couldn't get on the golf courses the way they they needed to. to. Yeah. Detroit had 32 golf teams in the city of Detroit, at least in the schools. Wow. Okay. I don't think they have five now. Now? Really? They had 32 golf teams. Wow. 32. And now they, and because what happens, the kids couldn't, I mean, they'd run a program. Well, one of them, the first team went bankrupt. It was mismanaged. Mm Mm-hmm. I remember I told you about the half a million dollars that Ford gave. Mm-hmm. Me and Rick Smith talk about it all the time. He was so upset he couldn't believe it. He's like, man, that money wasn't supposed to be. That money was. They gave a half a million dollars just to pay pros to teach. And the person that ran it uh, mismanaged it. Imagine that. <laughs> well, I'm sorry to hear that. Yeah. I'm super excited about them. They at least reached out to you. So they, 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 that's a bonus. Well, 
they've reached out to the group through the forum. Yeah. Uh, Susie, give me a call. Yeah. She needs to give me a call. And the other, the executive director, I mean, the head of the PGA, he, you know, they need to give me a call and I'll be glad to talk to them. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, it's not playing. It's not, this is not softball we're playing. Yeah. You know, they're, they're trying to have access to our d- demographics for one reason, because their sponsors telling them that that is the new emerging market. Okay. Mm-hmm. So uh, if they want to come into the new emerging market, okay, mm-hmm. bring some love. Yeah. You know, uh, bring, uh, bring their, your resources. Let us talk to you and we can tell them what resources we need to, uh, to bring this along. At the end of the day, I think uh, golf's going to do fine. I yeah. think because like programs like I do with Color Me Golf, all these kids just getting started playing golf. Doctors and lawyers and all that. Mm-hmm. And then we got uh, the junior golf programs that I did with, with the upper bound students. Man, they love the game. Uh, I, I wish I had some of the testimonies that they had with the kids. Yeah. One of the kids said, he, one of the kids thanked us for just letting them know that there was golf jobs. They never even thought about it. Yeah. One thing I can, I can tell everybody if they want to do and get an understanding of what I'm talking about, when they walk in the golf courses and get ready to pay their green fees, I want them to tell. I want them to be able to see how many people that don't look like them, and then yep. they'll get an idea of what's going on. Yeah, you know, you just don't see people that, you know. And this is the final thing. It's not all. It's not. It's not all of golf, because golf courses are small businesses. Small businesses have the tendency to hire people within their own community and that they have long relationships within their community yeah. or they have a relative or something like that. So it's sort of like having a Chinese restaurant. I mean, when I go to a Chinese restaurant, I know that Chinese food, more than likely, that's, that's who's going to be that's serving. Gonna be serving. Yeah. So... Um, it's not so much the industry uh, being saying, I'm not going to hire black folks. It's just that that's, that's the thing that we're in. Yeah. But the ones that are in the communities and in the urban areas, uh, the cities need to take a harder look. And the PGA needs to be uh, talking to us PGA members and ask us, how can we help instead of trying to tell us what we need to do uh, behind closed doors? Yeah. The do last you- thing I want to talk about yeah. is this director thing. The PGA has independent directors. And what they did, what they just did with this forum was they sent us a thing where they had, uh, I'm trying to think of the kid that plays for Denver uh, basketball. Uh, He's a new director that they, with this task force, they put him in there as a director. They put the guy that's on the golf channel that's a former wrestler him as a director mm-hmm. uh, to be uh, uh, a director to go around and help programs in the country and didn't even call a PGA member. I mean, why, is, why, why would they think that somebody else outside the industry 
that uh, is African-American can know and do more about growing the game of golf than somebody who just plays basketball for a career. And then he's got a little golf camp that he's putting on for his foundation. That that's going to do anything but they can say, look, we're helping yeah. that, that person. That's exactly what I feel like when I watch it. It doesn't seem like it's authentic. No, it doesn't man. seem real. No, it's not real. They need to come. They need to yeah. come with it. Do you feel like it's fear? Do you think it starts at that's the first word that it starts with is the fear? Yeah, I think I think it's because uh, the fear comes from the money because the sponsors are saying it. Yeah, you know. Uh, but do you feel like the it's the fear of for the first time really including the African American population? That yeah, they, because they of them, now now more more minorities. So here's always been a, 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 a misnomer. And I looked this up years ago uh, to see blacks that graduate, blacks that play, uh, minorities that graduate, African-Americans that play golf are higher educated and have more discretionary income than people that don't because they can afford to play. Mm -hmm. They've been to college or school or whatever. So um, I think, I think the it's more than fear is they got a captive audience. Yeah. That's what they feel. But now with the corporations and everybody saying, look, we're going in, in 2030, it's going to be pretty equal. And a little after that, it's going to be uh, a little more brown than it is white. And so uh, they want to try to get in. Uh, just like they did with the Asian market and build. And that's the same approach they should make for the urban market. They should go in and say, look, we're going to help develop the golf courses, some of the city golf courses and make those better. And Hey, why doesn't the PGA look at uh, developing some golf learning centers within the cities that not only can service that community, but also give PGA members uh, some jobs yeah. that are, that are in the area. Uh, especially where there's opportunity where land's available in, in some of these urban cities. Sure. And, or redo the golf courses or, or get involved with them some kind of way. But you, you have found that if you, if you give the kids an opportunity, you teach them just the basics of what it takes to play golf, mm -hmm. that they love it like anybody else would love Oh, them. man. I, so, so when I taught the programs, when I, when I taught my programs in Detroit and in uh, Houston – and throughout uh, down in Florida, a lot of these programs like at uh, Schoolcraft College in Detroit, I mean, the kids was, was probably, probably four out of 10 kids were people of color. Mm -hmm. And those kids just play, man, kids play. If you, you put them in an the environment and they play, they're gonna play. They're not gonna look at that. They're not gonna look at that differently. Yeah. Uh, and so uh, I think that it's it's more it's more getting them to do programs like Color Me Golf, where you're bringing people in of diverse colors uh, to play yeah. and have a good time. And, uh, you know, it's, it's sort of like golf has has always had. If you've got music and you got food. uh, uh if you got music and food and uh, sport together, people get it all. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. You know, so um, 
I think it's a it's a it's it's really important that the PGA uh, and then here's the other thing, and I, I just have to call out: they go out and they hire a uh, director of diversity for the PGA, African American director. Okay, she's going to talk about how people get along that are black, uh, uh, people of color get along with people that are not people of color. But in the golf industry, people play together in different colors all the time. Yeah, It's what they do in terms of, of giving them a, a, a situation where they can develop relationships and get to know each other, yeah. you know, playing together. You know, you get to know about people's families and all that. So they create more opportunities for people to go out and play together, just like we do with the kids. Yeah. Then the adults will, do, will, will follow along and do the same thing. Yeah. Yeah. It's fascinating. Yeah. Like, they, they, um, One of the big reasons why I wanted to do this podcast outside of highlighting your greatness was to use my love of teaching golf and helping anybody as a vehicle to create change, even if the big machine is only going to half-ass it, so to speak. And it's really important to me. I've spent a lot of time. So like through the TGA and the Tennessee's first T program. And uh, what year was that? It was 2014 or 15. I asked to the person, the, the boy and the girl who were deemed the highest award winner through the first T. I was going to teach them for free for one year to give back to right. golf. So, the girl didn't come, but the boy did, Kyle Harris. He ended up playing at Fisk, was at Tennessee State, and was awesome and a super talented golfer. And that's when I realized, like, wait a second, there's a lot that can be done. This boy has so much talent and didn't have the resources to take it to the next level. Yeah. And – Listening to his story was like, man. And that simultaneously came with me reading a book called The Sports Gene, written by David Epstein, who works for Sports Illustrated. Right. And I did an interview with him when I worked for the PGA Tour, uh, PGA Tour Radio. And I I said, you know, do you, I don't know if you get this a lot, sir, but your your book changed my life in two ways. One, which was to help me understand that the when somebody is considered gay or a lesbian or you know homosexual that that is not a choice that they have they were born that way and it's a a chemical error in the mother not the mother's fault but it's what the sex of the baby is and the hormone that gets sent (laughs) there aren't the same Mm -hmm. and it creates the problem of a boy with boy organs feeling like he's a girl, right? I did not know that. That was pretty profound. And the other one that totally blew my mind, and he said that he nearly didn't put it in the book because he was receiving so much threats, Wow, was that the only difference between a black man and a white man is 
the body's natural inclination to protect itself from the sun. You're a black man because your heritage grew up close to the equator. Right. And mine is Irish and German, much farther from the equator. Right. Well, you can't get much whiter than me <laughs> because of my heritage. Right. But if you took a person who grew up in Zaire and you moved him to Sweden in seven generations, their family would be much closer to white than hmm. black. Right. Seven generations it would take. So there is no difference. And right. he made this point that it was like, right. we need to move past this piece because it has nothing to do with anything other than pigmentation. Right. And I was like, wow. So I grew up in a town where there was only one, one black family. So I never really had to grow up in it, right? So I go to Mississippi State, and that's a different, a different world. But I grew up in a way that I was taught to, one, treat people with respect that treat me with respect no matter what. And if you find out you're dealing with somebody who may have a bad track record, but they still treat you good, then you treat them good, but you kind of keep your eye out, but you never treat somebody bad based on other people's information. You find out for yourself. You treat them correctly. So I went to Mississippi State, and I didn't have any real issues uh, at all uh, intermingling with multiple uh, races and cultures and, and what have you. Then I never really, It never really came into my life because I never treated somebody differently just because of they were Japanese or an African-American or a, a, a lesbian. That, that, mm -hmm. that never that didn't register with me. I never did that that way, mm -hmm. but I did see it that way. I did see people do that and I never really made any sense out of it. But to me, this, this time it's important because in some ways it should have been done a long time ago. Mm -hmm. And in some ways there's been so many different opportunities to take this diversity thing and take it to the next level and do something great with it. Not half-assed with it. Right. And then we have this George Floyd terrible incident. And I, I've talked about this before in another podcast. And it, 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 it's important for me to, like, yes, he was under the influence of drugs. And yes, he may have been resisting arrest. But that does not give anybody the right to kill somebody. Right. And that really, it was a heinous situation. It was awful. And it was terrible. So now we have this movement to can we finally do something and all these things are going on and I'm, I'm paying attention to it and i'm learning that even though i have never treated anybody differently just because that does not mean that i fully understand what it's like to be an african-american man right. or woman right. and what it's like to grow up in that situation and also not having any idea when I hear the term white privilege, I'm like, going, well, I don't treat anybody differently because of this or because of that. And, and then I quickly realized that that's actually not what the term white privilege is all about and right. what, what people are talking about. It's how people treat you. So please, like, this is important to me because I want people that are interested in being the best versions of themselves to create the best versions of opportunities for everybody, not just whites, not just blacks, right. everybody. Give everybody a fair opportunity, 
not a, not a fair out, not the same outcome. Don't guarantee the same outcome, but guarantee the same opportunity. That's right. Talk to us about what white privilege means and what this movement is about so that we can better understand where both sides are coming from. Because I don't think the media is doing a good job of portraying the truth on either side. Well, I tell you, uh, 400 years of slavery, man. Think about that. Yeah. Uh, systematic. Uh, being in a situation where people people treat you different because of how you look. Mm-hmm. That's the best way I can explain it. They look at me different. They treat me differently. Mm-hmm. That's, the, that's where the issues come in. It's, it's somebody going to the bank and having a 600 credit score and somebody going in at 550 and the person at 600, even though they've got not such great credit, the person at 550 gets it and the person at 600 doesn't just because of how they are. That's, that's the best way. I, that's, that's white privilege. So the person okay. that, so what you're saying there is the person at 550 was yeah. a, a white person and the person at 600 was not. Right. And because the banker trusted that the, the white person would pay, pay that loan back versus the non-white person. Right. Because this is not just a yeah, black I mean, conversation either. Yeah. This is a, everybody else other than. Right. Yeah. They right? just treat, you know, it's just like because of who you are, they treat you, they, they treat you differently. And that's, that's, where, that's where, white, where they get termed white privilege from. Interesting. So that's really helpful to yeah. me. Because I, I can tell you, when we first met, and I was down at the shed, mm-hmm. and you were giving a lesson over at West Haven. Mm-hmm. You know, when you rolled by and introduced yourself, the, the guy that you were teaching was an African-American guy that you talked off to. Mm-hmm. And I was like, okay, yep. we got some people out here t- teaching golf. Yep. Now, a lot of people, and we got to meet over the time, you're really busy getting your thing going. And I got a chance to just kind of, we got a chance to just get to know each other. Yep. And, uh, uh, but one of the things that I noticed uh, about the whole process was uh, how I asked a guy, I talked to him a little bit about it, about his golf lesson. He goes, I work with Virgil. And I was like, man, because I had watched you, you know, I, I kind of watched you teach a little bit. I said, well, you know, Virgil's top notch. And he, and he kind of he said, he goes, yeah, he goes, man, he goes, he's a good guy. And I hadn't been in, I probably hadn't been here a month. Mm-hmm. And uh, so uh, I've been, uh, Real happy to 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 uh, to talk about uh, all the things that that we can all do yeah. to kind of not take things that way, not pick the five hundred, the four fifty, or the seven hundred credit score, and somebody's got two hundred and pick the two hundred credit score. How that would feel if you're trying to do something like buy a house or do something for your family, and people yeah. look at you and say, "Well, you know, we're not going to do it on that." And, and, uh, you know, at the end of the day, I, I, I kind of, I'm kind of glad that we're having this conversation because we can, we can't make change if we don't talk. That's right. You know? And, uh, sometimes, um, we got to do a, a, 
uh, uh, more talking than we need to do. And some, uh, and uh, sometimes people need to, you know, like the PGA, they just need to listen. Yeah. But people in general, everybody's fired up about getting along. I, I've got neighbors that come by that don't look like me and said, hey, uh, I tell you, I had a former uh, ping rep, okay, mm-hmm. that I've known since 1986. I won't, I won't, well, he he probably wouldn't mind me saying his name, but anyway, he he's not wasn't only a, a um, sales rep, but his dad was too. Mm-hmm. When I was first getting to Mid Atlantic, and that's where I kind of got my first set of pings from. Uh, start uh, when I was playing, and uh, he was in town here. He drove from Birmingham. He is he's actually the tour one of the tour chaplains. Oh, nice! He drove to my house here. And we sat in the car, and he said, can you just tell me what I can do to be better? And I said, man, the fact that you came up here all the way from Birmingham just to talk to me about it Mm -hmm. is change. Yeah. The acknowledgement that there is something that needs to be changed. When you start heading in that direction, that means that you want to help be part of that. Yeah. And if people just want to get involved and know about it like you wanted to know and like he wanted to know, uh, then uh, I think that we're in a much better place. I agree. Because people want to know. And I probably had 10 to 15, Butch, man, how you doing? He goes, what can we do? We never, we, we never experienced that. I mean, shoot, I, I, when, I, when I got my driver's license uh, at 15 years old, I had to learn my driver's license number so that if something happened, uh, I had to be able to tell him the driver's license without having to reach in my pocket to get my wallet because I didn't want to be reaching for it and have a problem. So I memorized my driver's license number. R325797601012. That's unbelievable. <laughs> so it's a shame that you got to tell your 15-year-old kid <laughs> that you've got to do those sort of things yeah. in order to be treated, you yeah. know, make sure that you don't get in them. One of, one of my closest friends is uh, a doctor named Dwayne Harrison, one of my all-time favorites. I mean, he's almost like my dad here. And I said, Doc, tell me something. What was it like for you when you were growing up? And what was it? what's it like, some of the things that I can't possibly understand? And he said, Virgil, I know what you can understand is you have, you don't, you're about ready to have a 15 year old son and you have to tell your son, so when you get pulled over, you put both hands up on the steering wheel, you do, you do this, 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 and this and hope that that's enough. Right. And I'm like, are you kidding me? That's it, he man. goes, you, ha- that's what you have to do. And I'm like, I never had that conversation. Dude, they pulled my son over in, Mer- in in Dearborn, Michigan. And we had a we had a minivan and he had went to the mall and he drove back and they were doing the speed limit. Uh, him and my daughters were in the car and I think they might have had one other friend with them. And they pulled him over and just start questioning them about stuff and made them, you know, frisking. 
fisk everybody in the car. For no reason. No reason. And that was, I mean, he was, he, he was angry, uh, and it made him angry for a long time. I bet. You know, uh, because, uh, but yeah, he, uh, so I, you know, and we had had that talk with mm-hmm. him. So luckily he knew kind of what to do. Yeah. He was like, I can't believe they're stopping me. I mean, you know, what's going on, but. So I, the, I, like stories like that are, are interesting to me because we're in a situation right now where there are about four or five cities that are asking to defund their police. Yeah. I don't personally believe that's a good antidote yeah. for the problem, but when you hear stories like that, mm-hmm. well, the tr- the policing people the defunding defunding the police is what they're saying is that they need to take allocate the funds in a different way. It doesn't necessarily mean take away the money. It just means let's do something different with the money. Do something different with the money to provide more community policing by taking the money instead of buying something that, that can be a battering ram, take that and have some educational programs God, within yeah. the community yeah. to develop relationships with the, with the, with the officers that are there. Yeah. I just uh, wrote um, a, um, I just emailed back my cousin who just had his 36 year pin uh, in Detroit uh, serving mm. And he served all the way through the ranks through homicide and all that kind of stuff. And uh, one of the things that they were they've been able to do was to get a better grasp of uh, of the community spending. When you send in autos, getting those battering rams, and they're doing all this kind of stuff, why don't we invest more in the community and the kids? Take some of that money and put it in the Parks and Recreation Department. Yeah. That's when they're talking about what defunding like that to me is really important like i didn't know that that was going to be the answer you're going to give me yeah but that's the kind of stuff that makes me hate the news channels even more right that's not what they're saying right they're saying way worse like to get rid of the police well when they were yeah yeah well see here's the whole thing about police okay okay so policing started through slavery i did not know that yeah wow I mean, we were treated. We were treated like animals. <laughs> we were less than one third short of being human. You know, mm-hmm. so you know, beating them and put you know, beating us and putting us you know uh, in Har- cages. Horrible living conditions. All yeah. that horrible living conditions and not not having uh, liberties. Uh, you know. Uh, Time, back back during those days and up until probably the 60s, because in, in 19, uh, they did not, in, it wasn't until 1975 or 74 that Missouri didn't have separate prisons, blacks and male, whites, really? in prison, right. That, that just wasn't that long ago. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. So. So, um, you know, so what, you know, what they were doing uh, during that time was we worked from sun up to sundown. Blacks weren't allowed. Uh, blacks weren't allowed time. You work to sun up and you go in when sundown. Time was for white folks. 
well, I'll meet you up there at 12 o'clock. We didn't have that. Yeah. You know, so it's how they were approached. It's how, how we were beaten in front of our women. Yeah. I mean, you know, you say it's 400 years, but those things. So we learned how, where do we learn how to beat our women from? Or be, or, 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 or be uh, in, in those kind of situations. It wasn't the way that we, that we were raised and the way that we, that we worked ourselves when we lived across the water. Yeah. It's so frustrating. Yeah. So, so frustrating. And, and when people talk about the Confederate monuments and whatnot, people don't realize right down the street where I live, in Franklin, in Forest Crossing, right in there is where the last battle was fought. Right down in that area. Yep. And they lost. It'd be like Japan coming up in here. That's right. Are you going to put a, somebody with a kamikaze plane comes through? You got to put Hirohito up on there? <laughs> that's what I'm saying. Yeah. Okay. And that's what people don't realize. Uh, not everybody, but a lot of people don't realize is that they were fighting against the United States of America. And they lost. Okay, so during the battles, they were building these monuments. Okay, and uh, uh, tributes to people that did not believe that we were human, that we needed to we needed to be enslaved. So, I I tell all my friends that uh, are, are not of color, is just think about that. Think about if you. When you were coming up, your if your relatives were treated like that, it'd be really tough. Okay, what's really tough is they lie to their, you know, the generational uh, way that they were able to do history, and then now when the real as these younger people getting there and history is more revealed and they can see the real thing and what's happening, now you got to go back. They got to go back to the kids, and the kids are saying, "Dad, did this really happen?" You know, yep. so so it's up. It's it's really up to us to just take a deep breath and say, how do we have everybody where everybody's got a chance? Yeah, just like you said. Yeah, hey, so, so everybody the, just needs a chance. That's right. To me, uh, one of the things I've trying to do for myself is to understand that I don't need to ask permission from an organization to do the right thing. Exactly. So I'm taking the time to educate myself. There are some things I like just because I care and just because I have not done something bad does not mean that I'm fully informed and I am learning quickly yeah. as like I did today. Yeah. Like I thought that does not exempt me from having to listen to the lessons because I've never done some of these things. Right. What it does is it for, informs me that as much as I feel like I know, I know nothing. Mm-hmm. And the more that I want to learn, the more I found out that I didn't know. And the more informed you get. That's right. You know, the, 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 whole, the whole thing, uh, and like I told Pete, I put my arms around him. I said, man, the, the fact that you want to know, and that same thing with you, the, yeah. the fact that you want to know uh, what you can do to help and want to know what's really, what's really happening everything. Yeah. It's how we get there. That's right. Everybody's got to agree to the fact that we got to do something different and then work it out. That's right. You know, and I think, uh, I think 
I think we will be all right. It's just contrast out there right now. Mm-hmm. You got people uh, that uh, you got the people that that are on the right side, and if you don't if if you don't understand what the truth is or what's authentic, then you can get tricked. It's sort of like a dollar bill. If I put a if I put a dollar bill down there, to and then I put some 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 uh, monopoly money next to it. How do you know the difference? You know the difference because you know that one over there is authentic. Yeah. Okay, and then that's where people run into the problems is that uh, you can do whatever you want to do with that dollar bill, but this thing over here, you've got you've to know what's wrong in order to be able to do what's right. So you, you you can't know that that's a fake bill unless you know what the authentic thing, you know what the authenticity is of the uh, whatever it is that you're dealing with. Excellent. So here's how I look at it with all the stuff that's going around in this world. Okay, I get out, I get up in the morning, and I I make sure that I say say um, say thank you, do my prayer, whatever it is that I do in the morning, and. I'm going out knowing that when people walk by me, they got to see somebody that I want to represent as a human being. And uh, I don't go out into the world. try. I know that there's going to be somebody that's going to stare out in front of me. There's somebody that's going to, you know, do something or say something that I may not agree with. But in order for me to be able to, uh, to, do what's right uh, in this world, I just got to stay on, the, on, the, on, the, on a good path. Yeah. yeah. So this allows me to ask a question that I always do before I segue into the things that you do to fill your cup up. And this ought to be super poignant because you have experienced a lot of difficulties. But I always ask people in this interview, something that had to have happened in your life that challenged your level of perseverance, perseverance and resiliency to the point where you didn't know that you had it in you. And then once you made it past that moment, you realized how strong you were. Yeah. Obviously, your amazing road to the PGA to where you are today sounds like a straight shot to the top, but it certainly wasn't a straight shot to the top. No. Talk to us about something that happened in your, in your ascent. 31 years, 32 years recovering from drugs and alcohol. Really? Yeah. Talk to me about talk to me about that perseverance piece because uh, there's a lot of people like of all the things that I hear from mm-hmm. the feedback from the podcast right. is that they love when I when people humanize themselves right. and talk about something that they went through that was so yeah. bad and so harsh. Yeah, and they uh, made it through. Talk to us about your your, so, your perseverance story. So coming up, uh, I had community privilege from the time I was old enough to play sports. I was a pretty good athlete. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I would, and I always got a chance to play with the older kids because I was good enough to play with them. Yeah. You know, and I got better. So, um, uh, as I got going through back in those days, you know, everybody was partying and doing everything of that nature. And, uh, uh, 
from the time I was probably in eighth grade or something like that, it's the first time I experienced smoking a cigarette or smoking something else other than a cigarette. Yeah. And then as I got further along, uh, I was able to, you know, just kind of keep that on the down low. Uh, I still went to school and did my classes and did all that kind of stuff. And when it came to sports, I wasn't, a, you know, my mom and dad taught me how to be coach, coachable, so I wasn't a knucklehead. Yeah. Uh, and um, when I got to uh, when I got to when I got through college, my wife started medical school, and really uh, kind of uh, uh, start taking off when my wife was going to medical school, and we go out and hang and par- I would go out and hang and party while she was at school, and I started getting involved with you know, different drugs, experiment with different drugs and stuff like that. And it never really affected my athletics at all uh, at that point. But it did uh, have an influence over my lifestyle. And then, um, you know, shoot, I was partying, staying out late, uh, not not being uh, as faithful as I, as I should have been. And uh, so I went, when I went to Maryland, uh, my wife came six months later. Uh, she drove back and forth when I got my job in Columbia, Maryland at Hobbit's Glen. Mm-hmm. And then, so when she came down there, um, uh, I got injured, really had more opportunity to uh, play and do everything I wanted to do. But I still, while I was by myself, I still was doing things like I was by myself. And so I had a bunch of good friends. Uh, so the first time I went to uh, a rehab was in Michigan. So I went to alcohol rehab, and that helped me out quite a bit. And then I got the job in Maryland, and then that kind of went off, off, up, off the, uh, off the rail there a little bit. And uh, it wasn't until, but the Lord always put some really quality people in my life. Yeah, uh, I developed a relationship with a, a former NBA, I'm mean, former NFL Hall of Famer, uh, Lenny Moore. Mm. A Penn Stater. A Penn Stater. That's exactly <laughs> right. So Lenny, I met Lenny at the golf course through uh, uh, through golf, and I started teaching him how to play golf. And uh, so we developed this relationship. And so my my, my, wife, my wife had moved in back into Michigan. We hadn't had our child yet, and uh, or Scott wasn't quite there yet, right? So. Um, my wife was working in the inner city in medicine, uh, working uh, working at a community health clinic uh, as a doctor there. And uh, uh, Lenny, uh, I, so I ended up going to rehab. Uh, working at Hobbits, I went and told the guy that ran the gut place, I said, man, I'm, I'm, I'm not doing what's right. So I went into rehab and I came out and... Uh, uh, I remember going and looking in the, you know, looking in the mirror and I said, uh, you know, just, I just didn't like what I saw. Yeah. So my, my um, one day Lenny says, I want to go down and he goes, I want to meet your wife. So we drove down to Baltimore. He lived down to Baltimore. We met down there and I went and introduced him to Karen and he came out and Lenny's about six, four, six, five. He's a big fella. Big boy. And we walk out and he goes, man, if I didn't have a fear of the Lord in me, 
I'll whoop your ass right now. He said, why are you doing what you need to do? You know, and I said, so I went through that. Then probably two weeks later, a friend of mine is a gospel singer, Daniel Winans, with mm-hmm. the gospel group, the Winans. Uh-huh. Daniel was in town this week. Actually, we no actually kidding. played golf. He lives in Arizona. Huh. And so Danny, uh, uh, Danny, to all this, we played basketball, and I was kind of hiding it from everybody. And uh, uh, I remember going into the uh, his family that came to, to uh, have a concert in Baltimore. So I went with Daniel, and I had been out of rehab for about a week. And we're going, and he's a little late getting to the stage, so we're walking pretty fast. And so I said, Daniel, I said, man, just pray for me, man. And he stopped in the, underneath the underneath the uh, uh, in the hall of, of the arena. Uh-huh. He stopped and turned around at me and said, "You don't need me to pray for you. You pray for yourself. All you got to do is get on your knees. You can call him just like I can." And so we went there, had the concert, and I went back to my apartment, and uh, Karen wasn't there yet. And his brother, uh, Marvin, who was the probably the number one out of the winings. Sure. He was hungry. Then wanted, wanted something to eat. And we rode all the way out from Baltimore to Columbia, Maryland, and didn't find any food. Finally, I, just, I had some food at the house, and I cooked him some breakfast or whatever. And I told him about me uh, uh, having problems with the drug. I'd just been out of thing. And we just sit and talk, man. Uh, about the word. Now, he brought Daniel Winans, mm-hmm. Marvin, into my life for that period of time. And at that time, they were still traveling in their van, going to D.C. And just, mm-hmm. they were still had their jobs in Chicago, I mean, Detroit. Mm-hmm. And so when he left, I remember looking in the mirror. And I said, are you going to be that guy? Or are you going to be this guy right here? And I decided that I wanted to change. Well, that's awesome. But it didn't end there, though. Oh, wow. I ended up uh, uh, having some more issues. And uh, finally, finally, I looked in the mirror one more time. And I said, this can't. No, my son was born. So once my son got born, I remember my son was one years old. Uh, uh, and... Uh, in December, he had turned one, 19, uh, 1987. Uh, and so uh, he looked at me, and uh, I mean, I looked in the mirror, and I said, Karen, just give me one more try at this thing, and I'm going to get it right. And so uh, it, it happened during the se- off season, so I had like two months mm-hmm. where I, I was working indoors, away from the golf course, then I came back. Uh, and it was really humbling because uh, I had to take a part-time job and I was working at a gas station. And I worked, I went and worked at that gas station during the off time. Now I got all the members that's around it, you know, around the golf course mm-hmm. pulling in this gas station. Cause it was right by the mall. Mm-hmm. And I just worked that thing. And I was like, told Karen, I'm going to work it one day at a time. I went to 90 meetings in 90 days. Wow. Yeah. AA meetings, 90 meetings in 90 days. And then um, just did the, the, uh, the uh, a, you know, the, uh, 
the uh, the waltz they call it uh, step one, step two, and yeah, step three. Yeah, the yeah, the NA waltz. That's yeah. what they call it. Mm-hmm. You know, I didn't even go to four or five and all that. I just they told me keep it simple. Try to keep it on. You know, uh, step one, step two, and step three. And then I just kind of developed uh, every check that I got. I just handed it to my wife. She said, you don't have to do that. I said, after about six or seven months, she said, you know, you don't have to keep doing that. I said, yes, I do. I said, because you, when you go to sleep at night and when you wake up, I want you to know that you're going to be waking up to the same person that I went to bed, that you went to bed with. And, uh, and so it was, a lot of, it, it was a lot of her giving me another chance. I love that. You know, and uh, had our son, and uh, uh, we have shared. Uh, so we've been married uh, 42 years. That's awesome. Wait, 40, 40 years. This is 09. This is 19. This is 20. This is 20, right? Mm-hmm. Okay, so 70. Yeah, so we've been married 41 years. Wow. Yeah. That's 41 pretty, years. That's pretty we strong got, right got there, my sir. son. Uh, uh, and then when we were living in Flint, Michigan, we moved back to Michigan for a while before we came here when we first got back to Michigan. Yeah. And um, we adopted two girls, and they were eight and nine, hmm. Vanessa and Michelle. And so we've got, uh, uh, so we've got uh, out of that, we've got one grand, uh, one granddaughter, I mean, three grandkids, all girls. That's awesome. And we just found out last week we got another grandbaby coming. I love that. So that's what it was, man. So it was, it, it's interesting. You know, but it was the people around me, Lenny Moore, uh, I could name a whole lot of different uh, people in my life. Uh, Bill Young, uh, who used to be the, our Tylus rep in the Mid-Atlantic, ended mm-hmm. up being the tour rep. Uh, when I was in... When I was in uh, Maryland and first ca- got out of rehab, and him and his wife and uh, my wife and Karen and I went to go watch Luther Vandross in oh, nice. Washington D.C. and we became friends. And he gave me my first staff deal. He walked into the pro shop and handed me a Tylus uh, 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 bag. I love that. I said, "Your clubs are coming." <laughs> yeah, so. it's interesting. So I, I spend a lot of time watching and listening to podcasts because I want to sharpen my game right here. So. Joe Rogan does a bunch of really awesome ones. And he interviewed a guy named Johan Hurry. He's from London. And he is an expert on addiction. And he said that every, every country in the world's got it all wrong. He said, the, you have to take away the pain that's causing you to want to have to drug it or medicate it right. before you can actually get rid of it. And as soon as you take away the pain you take away the need for the drug yeah and i was like wow and he this it's a it's a podcast that rogan did you can look him up it's remarkable and he he's such an expert and that you can tell when you're around somebody that's an expert they take something that's radically complex and disseminate it to you in kindergarten form right. that is so powerful right. and he's just like we just have to understand that people are drugging themselves and drinking Right. To cover up pain yeah. that they don't have an answer to. Right. And it's so big. Most people don't like pain anyway. Right. That they're just trying to numb it so that they don't have, they can go up and can they can go to tomorrow. Right. Until they can get, you know, 14 more hours of work in until they mm-hmm. have to go drug that pain again. Right. 
did you feel like that's a fairly accurate statement that you, that yeah. in the process yeah, that think, you went through that you they took away what pained you? Yeah, you and hope? I and I think the uh, you know the addictive nature of uh, uh, using cocaine and uh, other forms of that uh, of the high high mm-hmm. was um, was it's more of a mental thing. Uh, you can you can kick that quicker than you can alcohol. Uh, you don't go through the same things. Uh, it's a shorter thing, and that's what makes it so dangerous because you can get over it in like three days, and you're feeling pretty good again. And yeah. oh, I'm never really that sick, and then you go right back. Yeah. But uh, f- uh, for me, was uh, I guess the biggest turning point for me that made it ha- make it help help me understand wanting to go to rehab was the fact that my dad had went to rehab. Mm. My dad had went and he, my mom was like, look, we got all these kids. You, she, she was never going to leave them, but Mm -hmm. she had to make them think it. Mm -hmm. So my dad went, uh, and, uh, he, he didn't go to, he went to, he went to AA meetings. And then once he got, you know, once he got going and got it, yeah. So when I got older and I knew that I was having problems, I just went to him and he was like, you just need to go, you know, you need to go, go in. I did it. Yeah. And look where we're at. Yeah. You know, him and his mom, we were all together. And that's awesome. So it was, he, my dad was a, 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 in a lot of ways was a, was a really great role model uh, for me. That's awesome. Yeah. Well, the second half of the show is about the things that you do to recharge your batteries that give you the energy to do what you're doing right now. Mm-hmm. And they, generally speaking, have something to do with music and live music, sporting events, and the things that bring like-minded people together for you that you recharge. Mm-hmm. When you were growing up, who was, your fa- who was your favorite musicians and your favorite bands and the kind of music you like to listen to? Oh, man. So music? Man, I, I loved Jazz, mm-hmm. I would have to say Whitney Houston's my favorite listener. <laughs> God gave her a say, voice, baby. I'd have to say Whitney. Uh, I was raised up listening to Dionne Warwick. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, all those guys with the Temptations, of course, being that close. Yeah. But I had a big influence on, on jazz. So I listened to uh, Gil Scott Heron. Uh, I listened to uh, Steely Dan. I listened, but I also. So when I when I was in fourth grade, I got moved to go to. Uh, I, I got moved to go to a Catholic school. Mm-hmm. So I lived in a black neighborhood, but I went. Uh, to a, uh, I was one of only probably a handful of black kids at the school, and so that's what's been the way, kind of the way of my life, is that the Lord has always puts me in a room with a whole bunch of people that don't look like me, and that's goes through the PGA and all the way up through. I go to PGA meetings. I'm the only African American at the meeting most of yeah. the time. So, um, so uh, going through, I listened to uh, a, a lot of uh, jazz. My favorite jazz musician is John Coltrane. Mm. I love John Coltrane, uh, Stevie Wonder. Uh, 
those all those guys were probably had the biggest influence on you. Prince, yeah, Mike, Prince. they all had they all had. It. And then of course some of the rap stuff that that goes on that I thought was kind of uh, definitive during that time. Yeah, but yeah, really it was just sitting home listening to, uh, you know, trying to uh, dance like the. Spinners, or you <laughs> yeah, know, the quarter couldn't couldn't hold a note. Uh, they mailed all my notes from school home because I couldn't carry any. <laughs> I couldn't carry a note, uh, and uh, yeah, so yeah, that that was my biggest influence. Um, watching, you know, watching the uh, the Ponderosa. And all those all those shows oh, that yeah. came on. That's and awesome. Davy Crockett and uh Barney Fife and all that. Uh-huh. I mean, so we listened to that stuff. Um Civil Rights was always kind of uh, a big play in our in our family. I'm I'm named after Malcolm Little, Malcolm X. Uh-huh. That my dad uh and mom went to the same uh, junior high school with him. No kidding. Yeah. And then um, my dad ended up going, I think I might have told you this, but my dad went south to go to college back then because they weren't, they weren't letting black athletes play at the private, at the public course, I mean, at the schools in, in, uh, up north. Really? I yeah. That. I did not know so that. they came, he came down and went to Alcorn, you know. Oh, wow. And then, uh, yeah. So when he went there, he met Megger Evers. And him and Megger are on the football team together. And so, uh, <laughs> yeah, my dad went to school with Megger Evers. And so coming through and understanding civil rights and uh, the, the the meaning of voting and all that stuff was big in our, yeah. in, our in our family. Interesting. You, got, you had to vote. Great. Greatest, uh, greatest concert you've ever been to? Oh, wow. The greatest concert I ever went to. I'd have to say, just, I have to say, uh, this is going to sound kind of funny, but I think Lionel Richie. No kidding. The Commodores. Oh, yeah. That was a concert, man. It was in Saginaw Arena. Really? Yeah, man. I just had to say the Commodores. They had the the Commodores. They had uh, Natalie Cole. Yeah. And they had somebody else that was really, really good. How cool! I think that, that was the, that was the biggest. Love me some Lionel yeah. Richie. I, yeah, I love Lionel Richie. And he uh, lives here in Nashville. Eric Clapton. I went to see Eric Clapton, and that was really good too. That was in Maryland. Yeah, he didn't need to sing; his guitar sang for him. Oh <laughs> man! And then he had the girls. Remember, he had all the girls with the wigs and stuff. <laughs> <laughs> That's so great. Yeah. Well, one of my favorite stories that I wanted you to tell is that most people would never know this. I didn't know this about you, but you, from Michigan, you love basketball. And there was some guy up there named Magic Johnson that you may or may not have spent a little bit of time with. Yeah, talk to us about your love of basketball. What it's like to what's it like to be around Magic Johnson, and how basketball and and people like Magic influenced who you are and where you are right. today. Well, um, he's little brother, so I, <laughs> I like to say I influenced it. No, but uh, uh, Irvin, uh, Irvin's brother and I went to kindergarten together. 
went to the same school, and then that's after third or fourth grade, I moved on. Yeah. Uh, and Irvin's family lived right next door to my ne- to my aunt, and I lived a couple blocks from them. So Irvin was the younger of everybody. He was kind of quiet. Really? Yeah. Irvin was kind of quiet. He wasn't. He was. He was just. You know, just kind of a smooth young kid. And um, uh, so, being around, uh, watching him grow and develop, uh, was when. You know, when I first really knew about him, my cousin Cheryl, uh, bless her heart, she's in Hallelujah Heaven. She loves sports, and at the time, I was probably one of the best kids my age playing the sport. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to say I was the best; I just let them say it. Yeah, I, you were one of. The I was best. considered one of the best uh, kid, young kids coming up, and so she called me up. Karen was in med was in med school, and and we had just moved to Detroit. She said, "Butchie." She said, you got to come see Irvin. He scored 54 points. He broke your record. And I said, okay, well, he scored 54. She said, no, but he did it in, he did it in a half. <laughs> and I was like, okay, so I got to try to see him. So finally I got, you know, back down that way. And, uh, uh, yeah, I was still in. I, I wasn't at. I wasn't in Detroit yet. I was still in. Uh, still in Michigan, uh, and so uh, I came down. Uh, you know, uh, I got a chance to see Irvin uh, finally play, and it was just amazing. He played a style of basketball that we played in our neighborhood, where all of our biggest, everybody loved Kareem. Even if you're two foot tall, everybody had a sky hook. <laughs> uh, everybody had a, a, we would we would throw no look passes before they coined it that, you know, because we when we played we played on a playground that had uh, had a, had a fence around it. So you sit on the fence and wait your turn. Yeah, and uh, uh, Irvin. Uh, so when you when you had to you know you had to wait your turn so you wanted to try to pick a team that's going to keep you you know keep you playing for a little while and whatnot so um, he he was uh, he just came out of nowhere man all of a sudden he started growing and he started playing and uh, I remember John Smoltz who I'll have talked golf to mm-hmm. uh, John told me he said yeah he said uh, I played against Irvin. He said, uh, I held him to 54 points. <laughs> <laughs> Shut him down. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but Irvin was cool. He, was, uh, he played, and then the next thing you know, when he started growing and started developing, a lot of guys took interest with him uh, in our community, which I lived in a wonderful, just wonderful community, uh, a neighborhood that I grew up in. We all fought each other, but we all loved each, yeah. uh, loved each other. You know, one of them things. Yeah. It's real competitive in our community, but we all have uh, a deep love and respect for everybody. It's amazing how magnetic his personality was and how great of a leader he was. Well, he was real, like I say, he was kind of shy till he got until about 10th grade, 11th grade. And then he really kind of shot up and then he started playing. And then he, his favorite player was, uh, Oscar Roberts. Yeah, I was going to say the big O. Okay. But we just kind of, 
we all kind of mimicked, it, mimicked those sort of things. But we had some really good uh, basketball players, uh, Ralph Simpson that came out of Pershing, and another group of player uh, athlete, uh, 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 guys that went to school at Michigan State that would play basketball in the summer. Mm-hmm. They used to give us summer camps and whatnot. Oh, fun. And so they all gave back. And uh, But he was – Irv was real cool. We, I thought for a minute he was going to end up going to Michigan. Thank goodness he didn't do that because I'd seen him <laughs> up there when Karen was in school. Uh-huh. My wife was in undergrad. She went to undergrad at Michigan, and then she went to med school at Michigan State. Well, we'd go up to Michigan uh, to watch – I'd go up and visit her and watch the basketball games, and I saw him a couple of times. Yeah. I said, what you doing with this stuff on? He said, man, it's free, and I'm getting my visit in. <laughs> <laughs> he said, so I'm good. not going nowhere. I'm not going oh, nowhere. Oh, that's so funny. But he almost went. You know, one of the reasons he didn't go, because they had recruited a guy named Mike McGee at Michigan, and they recruited him early. And uh, they couldn't guarantee Urban that he was going to start. Mike McGee ended up playing for the Lakers when? Yeah, he said, yeah. With Patrick Jones? Yeah, he sure did. That's right. How about yeah. That? It's yeah. interesting. He's you know, out of Ohio. Like, so I grew up. Magic, Bird, and Dr. J. Those, right. That was the face of the NBA right. when I was in my early formative years. Right. right. So, like, my best friend from home was a big Lakers fan. He loved Kareem and Magic and Worthy and Cooper and <laughs> Norm Nixon <laughs> and that did. whole group. My dad was the biggest Celtics fan. Oh, God, I hate the Celtics. <laughs> God, I hate the Celtics. And I've always hated the Celtics. And I really, although I really have learned <laughs> to appreciate Larry Bird right. now. But my goodness, did I hate Bird. But I love me some Dr. J. Hey, (laughs) if you want to see Magic and Larry Bird combined, watch Dodgic, the new player that's with Dallas. Oh, yeah, this guy is supposed to be unbelievable. (sighs) I've not really spent much time. He's supposed to be spectacular. He's he's sick. (laughs) I love that. He is, man. He's, he's, He's... Everything that they say is he's he's not no he I mean he he can play flat play that's awesome yeah what's the greatest sporting event you've ever watched in person wow what's the greatest sporting where it was down to the wire and just the environment everything was just electric wow oh the Pistons yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah the Detroit Pistons. Yeah, no man. doubt about it. Yeah, Is that the Isaiah, game. the Isaiah Thomas Pistons? Uh, no, no, or the Tayshawn Prince Pistons? I'd say, but I'd, I'd say, ooh, that's a good question. I would probably say, well, I played with Isaiah now. Is that right? Yeah, I played. I played summer league games with them because I was on Urban summer league team too. So I played with them. I would have to say it was Ben going to work. <laughs> I think I think I like that squad better. I do. That thing we were at all the games. Ah, that that so had cool. to, I'd have to say it was a piston game. Interesting. Tell me what do you know about the little spat, the f- the friction between Isaiah and Magic? Do you remember much about what that oh, was all yeah, about? What yeah, was that yeah, all about? They had to so 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 people got to understand this. Yeah. During the summers, we played four on four for a court at Jenison Fieldhouse. Judd could not coach. So Judd Heath, Judd Heath, Judd Heath coach yeah. could not coach, but he could watch. 
And Tom Izzo helped formulate the teams. No so you had to sign up on the sheet, and you had to be good enough to be able to play in the four-on-four court. Well, Isaiah and Mark Aguirre used to drive down and play. Mark In it all the time. Yeah. They would drive down on Wednesday. We'd play Wednesday, Thursday at the Men's Intramural Building. On, no, on Wednesday, we played at the Intramural mm-hmm. Building. On Thursday, we would play at Jenison Fieldhouse. Okay? And then Friday, if they stayed till Friday, we played Friday. And then, of course, everybody went out to Dooley's or whatever and party. Yeah. But, um, uh, Isaiah was there almost the whole summer, him and Mark Aguirre. Mm-hmm. And I remember uh, Ralph Simpson, who schooled me. I was with him all the time. Uh, uh, he, uh, he had a camp. Ralph was the second player to go hardship. Um, and he went out up Michigan State, and he played for the Denver Nuggets. Mm-hmm. And so, um, so he, had, he had a summer league uh, game. Uh, over at uh, over at uh, Everett High School, but Isaiah used to come down and play. So him and Isaiah were best friends. Where the change came in, I believe, was when Irvin when Irvin started winning. Isaiah might have asked him, "Well, how'd you do it? How you do it?" And Irv told him, I ain't telling you, Jack. <laughs> you got to get. He, here's what he told him. Here's, here's, what it, here's what the deal was. Irv's whole thing was, and what he was taught was, he was probably not going to be the one that was going to end up hitting the game winner. It's probably going to be the other person. So when you become unselfish, remember the game in Boston when he threw the ball nonchalant and Bird stole it? I mean, whoever stole it, mm-hmm. he stole it and took it in and scored under Pistons and they lost it? Yeah. Okay. Isaiah got Cavalier. So then some words started to spread about Irvin that wasn't necessarily wasn't true. And uh, Irvin didn't appreciate it. And, uh, and so in order for them to really be able to compete against each other, they had to be like brothers. And, you know, sometimes brothers fight. Yeah. So that's all that really was. Oh, that's interesting. And here's, what made, here's, here's the other thing uh, that, that, that came out of that was Isaiah not going to the Olympics. Yeah. It was interesting, you know, in that in that last dance, that thing that they did with Michael Jordan, which was really remarkable. Right. The first, they were really poignant. They really kind of pinned Jordan up against the wall on that. Was it you that blackballed him? And he said, "That's what I hear," but I didn't do anything. I didn't. He t- he 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 was he's blackballed him. MJ, huh? MJ blackballed him. No. Yeah, yeah, Michael, Michael Jordan, Jordan did. Because yeah. Magic Johnson is yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, my, yeah, Michael. So it was interesting because like a lot of people think that M- Michael Jordan was the guy that blackballed him. He's like, man, I didn't He do blackballed him. I don't care what Isaiah said. <laughs> I know I, Isaiah got black. I know Isaiah. We know how that all went down. 
He didn't right? let him in yeah. because the Pistons was kicking his butt. Yeah. They was beating up on him. The same, they gave him the same treatment that the Lakers gave the Lakers with with uh, when they had uh, Cornbread Maxwell and him. <laughs> the they was killing him. Yeah. <laughs> Irvin grew up, man. He came back home uh, after that year. He had a softball team that we were all playing on, uh-huh. and he stopped playing that. That's I mean, he was like. Plus, his, you know, the teams are probably telling him not to play, too. But, yeah. Because he loves softball, man. He's oh, a softball player. Well, he's a heck of an athlete. Yeah. That's he was a- all right. He was good, pretty good at softball. <laughs> you know, you have him tell it. He, yeah. He was all right. He, no, he, he, he was, yeah, he was, good, he was a good athlete. What do, you think, what do you think caused him to step down from the Lakers position that he was in? Like the, the general manager? It seemed like it was really. Out oh, you of mean the, like the last last few years? Yeah, when he did it? like maybe two. Like right, right, right man, before go LeBron do something else. Lord, tell him go do something else, man. Go Is enjoy right? yourself. Just go around and watch basketball if that's what you want to do. Yeah. Here's why he was starting to get upset with the NBA. Was back in the day, NBA players would come to town, and we'd have, we'd have. Uh, Iceman. George Gervin. We'd have George Gervin. We'd have uh, uh, Clark Kellogg. We'd have Isaiah. We'd have all, all of us playing basketball. And, and, uh, and so what was the question again? Well, it was, it, really what it comes down to is just like, what was I asked the question of? What, why did Magic Johnson leave? Oh, the, so he left. He left, man, uh, because it was really it was time. He he didn't like the fact that that's where I was getting at. He didn't like the fact that he had a whole bunch of mentors. Mm-hmm. And so when the kid was in Philadelphia, I can't remember. Uh, was it Kuzma or somebody that that was there that lived in Philadelphia? He wanted to work out with I with magic during the summer. And they said, you can't do that because they, they, they got him for collusion being, uh. and he was like, man, that's crazy. So I ain't putting up with that. So he, so now that he quit now, if now one of the kids want him to help him out or do whatever he could do it. He can do it. That yeah. makes sense. But he couldn't as an executive because he's co- evaluating the, the, talent. Oh, the collusion. And he could be telling them, look in two years, I've got you. Or, you know, so that's what happened. That's why he left the body. I love that. That's a, yeah. good, that's a good story. I love getting the little inside scoops because I just don't get the sensation that whether the media can't tell the truth right. because they're protecting something or they won't tell the truth because they're protecting something. Mm-hmm. Like, I never, we, we never really got any closure on that. I thought that was pretty interesting. Yeah. Um, this whole truth thing is for me is spiritual. Okay. The righteous shall inherit the earth. Just be, be righteous about it. Yeah. And look at stuff when you see. Okay, so if you see a person that is out of control, and you see a person over here that has good character because of how they act. This person, not so much. This person, so much. Okay? It's easy to pick out when somebody is doing something wrong. 
So you got to go with the person that that's got good character, mm-hmm. doesn't exhibit uh, 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 things that are out of control. Doesn't mean that they're a perfect person, but they're 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 they've got good character. They demonstrate uh, uh, a good character, and then you got a person that doesn't. Then you got to for me, I'm gonna go with the person every time that's got good character. Mm-hmm. And that's how I look at it. You can do it. You know, it's like somebody bring, like, what's your favorite meal? Well, that's tough because I love food. But I love a really good steak. And uh, <laughs> Ribeye, in bone, out of bone. I know, I know it's I'm a good. filet mignon guy. Okay, so filet mignon. Okay, so what happens if somebody? So what? What? What else do you? If you had the one meal, what would you have with it? A potato, or would it be? I'd probably have some, some like some. I love broccoli. I was just going to say I'm, some broccoli, broccoli. and a, probably a good baked potato. A good baked potato, right? Now, what would happen if I brought you that? Okay, and when I got ready to present it to you, okay, it's a. It's the top on the garbage can. <laughs> That's good, man. But I <laughs> <laughs> you need another travel for trash can, right? So a lot of times it's how people present it. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? It's all about the so if somebody's presenting it and it's nice and clean of what it is, then you know it's good. Mm-hmm. If it's got interesting point, yeah. You know, so and the same thing with looking, you know, looking with character. I'm, I'm, that's just me. I don't yeah. care who it is. Uh, when it comes to uh, having to vote, I just think everybody needs to exercise their vote and vote their conscience. Yeah. Okay? That's the way I look at it. If I see somebody that is out of control and somebody that's not out of control, more than likely I'm going to go with the person that's not. So, uh, you know, I think that's where people, where people uh, have – can get caught up with the falsehoods that's there is that the only way that you can really know the truth is know the word. Yeah. And act on the word. I go, whenever I want to really try to figure out what's going on, I go to the word. And if I see somebody acting out of character, it's easy for me to say, just take a step back. I probably need to, uh, if I could just put my arms around that person, I wish I could. Show him some love. Yeah. You know, people think contrary. I'm not staying around him. He's no good. Okay? Mm-hmm. Well, Lord, Lord doesn't make a bad thing. That's right. Mm-hmm. I've always found that even the worst criminal has plenty of good in them. You just got to put them in that, got to put them in their, yeah. their strong suit. Mm-hmm. You know, you got yeah. to make, make them yeah. feel. I serve, I serve a Lord not on one or two chances, but a, a second, third, fourth chances. Yeah. You know, but, you know, that's that's what he's that's that's what's out there is the contrast, the light and the dark. There's no false. There's no uh, uh, what they call them. False. uh, False witness. No, they could. Yeah. False truth or something. Half truth. There's no such thing as a half Half truth. Yeah. Good point. Yeah. Final question, sir. Yeah. One of my favorite questions to ask comes from a friend, uh, not a friend of mine, a a follower on social media. His name is Jason Silva. And the question he poses is that in life we face three deaths. 
the day you find out you're going to die, the day that you die, and then your final death is when nobody mentions your name ever again, the last time your name is ever mentioned. What are you going to do to make you last forever? What do you want your legacy to be? What people to remember Butch Rhodes by? I want them to... Uh Serving. Serve. Serving. Looking out for him. Yeah. Caring for him. Yeah. Yeah. Well, if I can tell you one thing, buddy, you're one of the my favorite people to interact with. I'm so <laughs> I'm so happy that you got this opportunity to do something special for well, the I appreciate you to for uh, the PG. Think enough about me to want to spend some time to talk to me about about some things. That's I and, appreciate that. And all the things that you did to help our help our team win the state championship. Oh, we have fun. The, the, the coach, I mean, the kids are out there like, when's Butch coming back? I'm a, uh, I wish I wish I could come back and do, I can come back and just watch it practice or oh, something. Oh, sure, you can go over. Yeah. So JV practice starts on Wednesday. So the guys, the, the oh, Varsity B guys. Oh, they on Wednesday. Yeah, so the, they're tomorrow. So, Vars, um, so they were like, hey, man, when, is Butch going to be coach? I said, not this year. Butch has got a, a bigger program. Yeah. To uh, yeah, I'm to gonna address. come and, and like, oh man, like that's it, like that just lets hey, you how's, know how's uh how's how's uh the swimmer doing? Patrick Francis on the varsity golf team, <laughs> <laughs> and he's played uh, he's played a couple times for us. He's playing today, <laughs> and uh, he's such a great kid. He is a great kid. He and Sloan both made the varsity team this year. That's what I'm talking. So about. they're the first two kids that were on varsity B. To make it on the varsity program, yeah. So, they, and, so, so it helped them last. That's right, and more than anything, is they were all, they wanted. Because Patrick called me, he was like, "Are you coming?" And I didn't want to, I didn't want to say anything before I talked to you. Yeah. And uh, but uh, I can come up there and and and, and walk the walk the line a little bit or something. And, of course, they'd love to see you yeah. because they all ask me about you. Yeah, I'll yeah. get up. Now, do you guys get your match on Thursday? We have a match on Thursday and as well, practice? but it's girls only. Girls only, but the varsity B will be uh, over there. Start pa- Wednesday. Patrick's on the varsity. Patrick's on the varsity, yeah. and then uh, we got we got a big big tournament he's Friday. Got, Saturday. He's got a lot of talent. Yeah, he, yes, he's you got a chance to work with him. Yeah. So Thursday, when you make it, you're going to get a chance to meet uh, Dominique. Oh, that's remember, right. Remember yeah. I was telling you about it. Yeah, I can't he can wait, play, man. I'm looking forward to it. He can play. So we get done our match on Thursday. I'm going to come check out. Hey, he can play and he can putt. I need to talk with him. Oh, he can putt. My ball evades the hole. I'm still trying to find the ball that goes in. (laughs) Hey, man, you know what I did? You know, my hand's shaking and stuff, right? Mm -hmm. So I'm all over the place with it. And I had an old, old, long B60. Yeah. And I'm in in played against sports, picking up something for my grandchild or something, something I was getting out of there. And I looked, and there was this old B60 long thing. (laughs) You know, Pink, uh-huh. I'm knocking everything. <laughs> I so hold it good. right here. I'm putting left-handed. Oh, really? So I hold it here. I hold it right here. Uh-huh. And I turn this hand that way just a little bit. <laughs> that thing is muddy. <laughs> I sat, man, I'm, I'm, I'm all over the board. Um, I think I finally realized what my problem was. Oh, can I take this off now? No, it's, we're still on. Oh, okay. Okay, I'll tell you what, what, I, what I did was uh, I always had a pause in my swing, in my transition. Kind of like Hideki Matsuyama? Yeah, maybe a little bit quicker than that, but not much. Uh-huh. So it's like my chip, my tempo for my chips are like 
Yeah. Okay. So it'd be. So up here it'd be. And then. I had forgotten that I did it. So Mark Daniel Winus was in town, and Mark and Mark Arnold. We all went and played. We played over at West Haven, and Mark. I said I I came out chipping. I was just warming up, so I just did like that and hit a couple of chips, and it clicked. I said, Mark, did I used to I used to have a pause in the back of my swing, didn't I? He said, Yeah, you used to have a pause. That's what my problem was. I was getting here, and then I was just going. Yeah. I never let that set. And I went out and played pretty good after that. I love that. It's yeah. what makes golf so fun. That's crazy, We forget man. what we know because there's so much to know. Well, and I had all those injuries, right? Oh, yeah. Goodness so gracious. that's 15, 17 years ago, almost 20 years ago, when I first got injured at 50. So 12 years ago. Yeah. I had forgotten. I had forgot that. So I'm sitting there. I'm surprised I could even get the ball in the air. But now I get there and I can pause it. And uh, who was it? It was uh, one of the older guys that's a pro over. He's on the board over at the PGA. I can't say his name right now. But he was he was telling me that uh, similar thing, but I didn't really grasp it. And that is uh, when I get back here and I pause – it gives my gives me room that if I have to, if I make a mistake and have to change, I've got room to change it. But when I get here and get right here and just pause and it doesn't get here, now when I come down, if I don't get that thing exactly right, then I'm going that way. That's right. Yeah. So I I shouted. I I was playing real good on the back nine. I was even par over at National Golf, going into 17 and 18. And I got a a phone call uh, about the golf course, mm-hmm. and so I just kind of bogeyed and then double bogey coming in, shoot thirty nine. But I love it, man. Well, I love that you're starting to get your health back. Yeah, and, man. Uh, I'm coming. Some, I'm trying to get the flat belly like you, man. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm unbelievably grateful that you took the time to share your story and yeah. your ideas. What we need to do going forward. I look forward to seeing you soon, bro. I'm going to come by and see the guys. Yeah, I look forward to it. Thank no, you. No doubt about it. I tell them I'm on sabbatical for a minute. <laughs>